If you'd like to locate Ecclesiastes 8 in your Bible. Our passage for this morning is going to be verses 1 to 9 of chapter 8. And it's, uh, I'll just warn you up front, it's uh, going to be personal. And um, it's going to be relevant as we live in a world under authority that um, is not always righteous in their actions. And I'm going to ask you to do your best to uh, keep those defensive walls down. Uh, It's not a personal thing that I think you're getting irritated with me or you're getting defensive with me. It's just the topic is going to... Uh, not the topic, the words in our Bibles are going to be such that our our defensive walls are going to want to go up. Uh, I feel it, and I think you will feel it as well. But we'll read verses 8 to 9, and then later on this morning we'll be in Romans briefly and in First Peter briefly. But reading from Ecclesiastes chapter 8 and beginning in verse 1, and I think what I'll do, I'm just going to read down through the end of the chapter. It's 16 verses. It's it's all one main theme, but we only have time for part of it this morning, but uh, we'll read the whole chapter. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for what he does, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And you may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. Just that verse. You ever sat back and looked at an authority's decision and say, what in the world are you thinking? Where did you come up with that great idea? So he's talking to us. There is a proper, there is a time and a way for everything, although a man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This is also vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said this is also vanity. And I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun than to eat and drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. I mentioned in um, a previous sermon, I think it was the last time we were in Ecclesiastes, the beginning in chapter 7, remember chapters 1 to 6 were really the first half of Ecclesiastes. And he was, study, he, was, he was dealing with topics such as possessions and wealth and overall view of life and relationships. And, and that as he came into chapter 7, he was shifting his focus from those issues specifically, work, possessions, and pleasure, 
to a discussion of wisdom itself and how wise people should view common life issues. So as we move forward in chapters 7 through the end of this book, we're going to hear that word wisdom a lot or the word wise a lot because that's going to become his focus now. Talking about wisdom, wise living, and what that's going to look at, look like. And I think it's interesting, you know, it doesn't surprise us, it shouldn't surprise us, when we read Proverbs or when we read Ecclesiastes, uh, that these books that Solomon has written, that wisdom is a key topic for him. Even when he's not specifically in a long discussion of wisdom, he will drop in that word or he'll drop in the word like the wise. And it shouldn't surprise us because who is he? What's, what's his claim to fame? What does everybody know Solomon for? The wisest man that lived. So because of that, I think it's good for us that when we see him drop that word wisdom or he has an extended discussion about wisdom or when he talks about the wise, our ears should perk up because that is his domain, so to speak. That's his area of expertise is wisdom. And if we look back at chapter 7, and I didn't really highlight this when we were in chapter 7, but he speaks about wisdom a lot in chapter 7, and we, we could just go down again. If you have an ESV Bible, you'll see over the, uh, or ESV translation, you'll see over chapter 7, the contrast of wisdom and folly, the little header. And he's going to go back and forth talking about fools, the wise, wisdom, foolishness. But in verse 11, is kind of where I want to, begin to pick up this morning he has a lot, as he moves through he has a lot of good things to say about wisdom and in verse 11 he says wisdom is good with an with an inheritance an advantage to those who see the sun if you're alive and you're given money wisdom is a good thing some people translate that statement and i think it fits better that wisdom like an inheritance is a good thing and it benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a, is a good thing. He talks about it positively. In verse 12, he follows with the words that wisdom preserves the life of the one who has it. Generally speaking, that's not a promise. Never understand the Proverbs or Ecclesiastes as promises. They're general observations of life that a wise man has pulled together. Generally speaking, the way it goes is that wisdom, wise people live longer than those who don't, who, do, who are foolish. And possibly exaggerating a bit to make his point, Solomon says in verse 19 of chapter 7 that wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than 10 rulers in a city. His point is that you want wisdom. And wisdom will give you an influence with those who are around you. In chapter 8, he continues his praise of wisdom, telling us that the possession of wisdom can actually have an effect on the features of a person's face. It's an interesting statement. Lots been written about this. A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. It, you, you could even translate that as uh, a man's wisdom makes him have favor upon other people, to show favor correctly among other people. And the scowl um, uh, will be removed from your face if you're wise. It doesn't mean you're going to have a happy face. It means that you're going to have a peaceful face. It means that you're going to have uh, a contented face as opposed to an angry or scowling face. <clears throat> I used to know someone who, who said... Uh, what your face looks like up until the age of 40 is your parents' fault. After that, it's your fault, what your face looks like. And I don't totally agree with that, but uh, I, I did understand his point. Uh, yeah, that, that's, we'll just close there for today. That's a good thing to walk away with for today, but no, we're not going to. <clears throat> Solomon, my point is that Solomon sees wisdom as a good thing. But having said all those good things about wisdom, which he 
makes the point in other places that that wisdom comes from God. Solomon wants us to know that there are things in life that even the wisest person cannot figure out. There are situations that we live in that don't make sense and we don't understand. And we look at them and try to figure out what's going on or what God's trying to do, specifically through those circumstances. And Solomon says, even the wisest person cannot answer the riddle, cannot solve the problem or figure out an answer to all the problems of life. This wisest man to walk the face of the earth tells us in 7.23 that he sought to be wise. He said to himself, I will be wise. I will be wise. And, and, I, and I think back to Solomon when God comes to him and says, tell me what you want. I'll give you anything you want. And Solomon's response is, I need wisdom. I need wisdom so that I can govern these people well. And he feels the burden and the pressure of becoming king. And God says, you've asked well. And he gives him wisdom. And he says, I also, because you asked for wisdom, I will give you riches and power as well. And Solomon says here, how much further along in his life here? I don't know. But he says, I will be wise, but it was far from me. God gave me wisdom and I studied wisdom and I pursued wisdom. And yet it just seemed to be out there beyond me. What I needed was beyond me. And in verse 24, he says, that which has been that which has been is far off and deep very deep who can find it out solomon's solomon's statement is simply even as a wise man even as a person who has spent his life pursuing wisdom there are just things about god and how he works that are far away from our way of thinking and way too deep for us to ever understand, to ever get to the bottom of it. At the close of chapter 8, he again says, when I applied my heart to know wisdom, I, I, I pursued wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth. Then in verse 17 of chapter 8, he says, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. In other words, what Solomon is saying is that no matter how much wisdom one possesses, no matter how much one studies to understand God in his ways, there will still be aspects of what God does and how God's will plays out that we as humans will never understand. Years ago, I um, was talking to a colleague at the college. He was new. Um, he had just come. He, he uh, had his PhD in entomology from um, Cal Berkeley. Uh, he was an older man. He'd spent 40 years working in the, uh, what we would call Department of Natural Resources here in the United States, but, uh, uh, but really more on the level of the, uh, uh, I can't think of what it's called now, it's the group that, it's the, it's the branch or the part of government that oversees all of the natural resources out there, um, Bureau of something. Um, but he had spent 40 years working for them in Nova Scotia and was pretty high up and an extremely humble man. And he, he wrote three different college, Christian colleges and said, I am looking to retire, but I want to end my life teaching at a Christian college in the science department. I will come and teach science if you'll give me a place to live and food to eat. And that's all I need. And um, all the colleges were like, come, we want you. And uh, Northland got him. Just a kind, humble man. But I remember talking with him one day about some issues in science and, and different things. And, um, and he, said, he said, John, 
I found that sometimes humans create problems and only God can solve. And it's true. And um, as I read Solomon here and I, I hear these words, uh, even though a wise man claims to know all the ways of God, he cannot find it out. There are things that God does and there are ways that God works that just don't make sense and we won't figure it out. But in the middle of these statements about wisdom, Solomon takes our attention to a couple of topics that seem to perplex his original audience and in many ways still perplex us today. The first topic in this discussion of wisdom and its value and its limitations. The first topic is found in verses two to nine, and it's the question of our relationship to authority, especially when the wicked are in positions of power over us. That is a perplexing topic. Why does God allow wicked people to rule? And, and promote wickedness. And what we're going to find later this morning is we can drop the word allow. Why does God allow? And change that word to why does God choose to put in power wicked people? And, and Solomon is going to give us some ideas that... Uh, <laughs> You know the way Solomon writes this? You just kind of walk away and go, Solomon doesn't really have a good answer. Uh, and, and that really is the agreed position of most people here. In fact, it's very difficult to figure out exactly what Solomon was saying. There's going to be some things that we can take away from it, but it, it, it's like he just doesn't have a really good answer for us. But that first perplexing issue is what do we do and how do we live when the wicked are in positions of power over us? The second issue that he's going to draw our attention to is the problem that grows out of the first. Wicked people being honored and the righteous suffering under the power of the wicked. And for today, we're going to consider just the first issue, the question of our relationship to authority. But what is the expectation for the righteous in relation to their authority? I don't know if any of you saw in the news yesterday. It made me sit back and say, things are not as bad as we sometimes think they are in the United States. But the, the uh, Communist Party in China yesterday held their big final meeting where they present all of their new or existing powerful people. And the guy who is the head of uh, China right now, that Xi, is that how you say his name? I'm not sure. Xi? Okay. Um, there was a picture of him sitting down front, you know, they've got all these people up behind him, and he's in the front. And on one side of him is the head of something in the party, and on the other side of him to his left, was his predecessor who served for 10 years in the position that the current guy has now. And anybody see this in the news? There was a video of it. In the middle of the meeting, so this guy is like a past president in the United States. In the middle of the meeting, security official comes down the aisle to the front of this big auditorium where they're having this meeting and puts his hand under the arm of this former guy, who's now 75 years old, lifts him up and arrests him on the spot and takes him out. And he, they disappeared him. He's gone. And, and he was not expecting it. And he looked over at the guy who is now going to be in power for as long as he wants to be with absolute power. And he just looked at him and that guy just kind of turned his head a little bit and that was it. And he, he tried to talk with him, he tried, and he just turned his head. And I sat there and I, as I watched that, as I read the story, I just thought, you know, it isn't that bad yet. <laughs> I mean, you don't, just, you don't just 
disappear in, in those scenarios. And that guy is done. He has no recourse. He has no, no appellation or, or ability to appeal to any kind of justice because there is none. So I thought, just to kind of set the stage, let's, let's first think about how bad it could be before we talk about where we are. I have traveled to many countries. I have been in Ukraine a lot. I have been in Russia behind, shortly after the Iron Curtain went down. I know what it's like to live in those countries. And when they tell you, when you arrive and they tell you, do not talk out loud outside. And you're in the apartment, you can talk. This was in Ukraine. When you're in the apartment, you can talk and that's fine. But whatever you say, be very careful because we are bugged. They have listening devices in this apartment. So be very careful what you say. When we go outdoors, don't talk because they will immediately know you're an American and we don't want that attention and it's dangerous. To get everything done, you have to bribe. Our, our, we came in with our visas. You have to have your visas just validated when you get there for the length of time that you're going to be there. Um, the guy who was our handler, he said, I need some flowers and I need some chocolates. And I was just like, what do you need flowers and chocolates for? He said, in order to get these validated, I need to have something to give to the people who do it or they will not validate them for me. A friend of mine who had been there previously um, told me that their passports had actually not been, their visas had not been validated on time. And so the guy needed money. And he said that they drove, they drove down into the main part of the city, the capital area. And uh, this, this guy's name was Sasha. The, the guy who was our handler was Sasha, really good guy. His, uh, his uncle was in the Russian mafia. So it was just kind of interesting. But, uh, but Sasha, the guy said Sasha got parked the car, got out of the car, went into the building, came out a few minutes later, walked into an alleyway, and my friend said, I was supposed to stay in the car, but I really wanted to know what Sasha was doing in the alleyway. So I got out and kind of peeked, and Sasha was back there with two military guys paying him off. Again, just a backdrop to what it can be like. And, and I can't tell you how happy I was every time to come back into the United States of America. I felt, I could feel the privileges that I have here. But here is Solomon. This is the irony of this. Solomon being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about how to respond to the king. I don't know if you catch the irony of that, but remember the kind of person that Solomon was? He worshiped pagan idols. He taxed his people to their harm for his own self-indulgences. And he lived in immorality. And the guy that the Holy Spirit chooses to, to write Ecclesiastes and how we should respond to the king is not a great king. And yet, as I thought about that, I thought, here we are, we find God using people in spite of themselves to accomplish his good purposes. And that is really the overarching theme that we have to keep in mind, is that God uses people in spite of themselves to accomplish his good purposes. And the fact is, if we are looking for a righteous person to be our leader, whether we live in a dictatorship or we live in a place where we can elect our leaders, if we're looking for a righteous person to be our leader, there's only one that really fits that bill. We may be righteous before God because we are believers, but we often act in unrighteous ways. Is that fair? So my point is, that we are always going to be under the authority of someone that God is using 
in spite of their selves to accomplish his purposes. There's some really basic concepts that are expressed in these verses that Solomon shares with us. First, Solomon tells us that God's people were to obey the king's command because of God's oath to him. God made an oath. God has chosen and he has put this person in this position. Specifically for Israel, God had made an oath to David that his son would always sit on the throne. And now Solomon is sitting on the throne and he's there because of God's promise. A way that we could also understand this is that the king exists in his position of power because God has chosen to give him that position. I remember years ago at at Northland, it was interesting. Politics were a big deal for certain leaders there. And, um, and it was when um, Bill Clinton was running for president. And I remember when Bill Clinton got elected to his first term and they had had prayer meetings like you would not believe that God would not let Bill Clinton win. And that next morning, Wednesday morning in chapel, you thought that God himself had died. It was just a place of mourning. And I remember walking in there and I was just like, you know, I, I really did walk up to a couple people and say, did God die last night? And, and they were like, why? I said, because you're all walking around like he did because Bill Clinton got elected. And, and there was this, this gloomy mood in, in chapel that morning and I, I said to some people, and, and as Bible faculty, we talked to each other. We were talking with each other, and, and it was just like, Bill Clinton won because God wanted Bill Clinton to win. For whatever reasons, he did. Now you may say, oh, no, 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 the Bible doesn't say that. Okay, Psalm 72. We read in Psalm 72, not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Well, that's not talking about kings and, and presidents and all that, okay? Daniel, Daniel who served under a pagan king that had conquered his people and had enslaved them. After receiving a vision to interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream, remember that whole thing? Nebuchadnezzar was gonna start killing people if somebody didn't interpret his dream. And he offered a big reward if he did. And God comes to Daniel in the night and gives him a vision, interpreting the dream. And Daniel says, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. That doesn't get any clearer. I've wondered from time to time how Daniel's friends felt when he told them that. They're all sitting around. This guy's a pagan. Their land has been destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar is an idiot. And Daniel says, I got a vision from God. By the way, guys, I just thought you'd like to know that one of the things I found out is that God removes kings and sets up kings. So Nebuchadnezzar is the dude right now because God put him in that place. Nebuchadnezzar was a bad man, very bad man. Nebuchadnezzar came to know God. And I think Nebuchadnezzar died as an Old Testament saint. But when Daniel received this vision, Nebuchadnezzar was a bad guy. But get that phrase that Daniel says, God removes kings and God sets up kings. And then the question that comes to us, and it in one sense should be pretty easily answered by Daniel's statement, but the question that comes to us is, but what if the king is wicked? What if the president is wicked? What if the people in power are wicked? What if our president, he isn't even running the country and there's people around him running the country? And I'm not even sure that that's 
conspiracy theory anymore. I don't know how many of you saw the video this week where President Biden was being interviewed and they asked him how his wife felt about him running for another term. And he just looked down and it's like his face, face went blank and he just stared at the floor for a long time. And somebody joked that he fell asleep and it looked like he did. And, and then when he went to answer, he couldn't really give an answer and then he finally got it out. But the guy, the guy who was interviewing him asked him the question and he put his head down and just stared at the floor with his eyes half closed. And the guy then said, Mr. President? And it was long enough that the guy felt it was awkward. Well, how do we live as Christians when we don't even know who's running the country? How do we respond to the authority? And how do we live in that environment? Even worse, how should God's people, especially wise people, respond when the king's command is evil? How do we respond when the king's command is evil? And I would say to you, having lived 61 years and seen a lot of different presidents over the time, there's Republicans and Democrats who have done evil things and have pushed for evil things. It's, that's the one good thing about being 61 is now I can say, I've lived long enough to be able to have a wide perspective. When I get to be 80, I'm gonna say that 61, my, my ears were wet, you know, and I still hadn't grown up enough to know. But right now, I feel comfortable saying, at 61, I've seen a lot of presidents. I was alive for JFK, remember him getting shot? all the way up to the present, current. And I lived through the Nixon years, and Nixon was a bad man, a bad man. What do we do when the king's command is evil? Well, Solomon says in verse three, that God's people should not stand with those who plot evil. Do not take your stand in an evil, evil cause. Essentially, Solomon, speaking on behalf of God, was telling his people, even before worse kings came to rule over Israel, and long before they were conquered by Assyria and Babylon, that they should not fight evil with evil. You don't stand with him, and you don't fight evil with evil. Somebody might say, well, what do I do if my life is threatened? What if disobeying the king puts me in a place where my life is threatened? Doing the right thing could result in my death. Doing the right thing could result in my imprisonment. Solomon's response is that none of us know the outcome of our decisions. We all make decisions every day. We don't know the outcome of those decisions. And if the outcome is death, the reality is that all of us will die sometime. Now that sounds like a real strange answer. So the question is, what if obeying God and disobeying the king in an evil thing results in my death? And Solomon's answer is, we really don't know the outcome of your decision. And oh, by the way, everybody dies sometime anyway. So what's the big deal? Thanks, Solomon. You know, that, that's why I say what he has to say here is to some degree difficult to deal with. What he ends with in this section is just understand that choosing to respond to evil with evil will not rescue you. Choosing to respond to evil with evil will not rescue you. In fact, you've just become as wicked as the guy that you oppose. And the difficulty with this passage, I think for some people and, um, and especially for us as Americans is that we do not live under kings and queens. Even in England where they live under kings and queens, they don't really have any power. Most countries today live in a form of representative government to one degree or another. But there are still places today where Christians are dying because they're Christians. 
Iran. The Gospel Coalition group that's, that you've heard me talk about has gotten a lot of material and, and uh, both print and um, audio, video stuff into Iran uh, under, under, under the radar, so to speak. And there are churches in Iran right now that are beginning to flourish and the gospel is actually spreading in Iran, but they also are getting found out and caught and dying on a regular basis. If you go into the portions of Central Asia in what are called the Stan countries, Kazakhstan, those, those places, uh, it's a very similar picture. The gospel is spreading in those regions and yet those people are dying on a regular basis. North Korea has a very, very small Christian population because they keep a really tight control of it and they find out that you're a Christian, you're arrested, you're either going to go to a labor camp or they're going to kill you and your whole family is going to go to a labor camp with you if that happens, if they catch you. China, somewhat depends on what region of China you are in, but the but there is the underground church and then there's a above ground church that you have to agree to certain things that has a specific name in China. Um, and, uh, and yet if you really preach the gospel, you're in trouble in China. There are places in Africa that are similar, but the reality is that the gospel is just exploding in those places. And people are coming to know Christ on a regular basis. But for those of us who don't live under despots or don't live under kings and queens, where we don't live under people who have absolute power, how should we hear what Solomon has to say? And has God changed his expectations for those he has placed under a far different form of government? And we could point to what Jesus said about authority. But again, that's still under a king. But I, I would just put it out to you that Jesus, when questioned by the Pharisees regarding taxes, should they pay taxes to Caesar? That's the moment where he has the coin and he says, whose image is this? Jesus was really smart. He just had some really good arguments. But he says, whose image is this? It's Caesar's. Well, then render to Caesar's with Caesar's. Pay your taxes. And I've seen some people who say that, I've talked to some people who say, well, that just means that Jesus was saying we're responsible to pay our taxes, but that doesn't mean we have to obey ungodly leaders. And I I can see that argument, and it is under a king, and it's not under an elected form of government. So how do we know in today's environment, how we are supposed to respond to the authorities who are over us in an elected form of government. And I will say to you that I'm not just talking about the president or the vice president or the head of the Senate or the head of the representatives, uh, House of Representatives. I'm talking all the way down to our local police officers and everything in between because all of them are in power by God's will and God's purpose. So how do we respond to these people? I think Paul is probably the most clear guy on this topic. So I'd like for us to go to Romans 12. And look at what Paul has to say to us in Romans 12. Well, first 13. So... Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every person, you know this, and you hate this passage if you're honest. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now that's a, let's just stop there for a second. That is an amazing statement. When he says governing authorities, he's not just referring to the top person. He's all the way down. Governing authorities. And if we understand this passage correctly, and this is where the ways of God become deep, very deep, and very far out to us. 
But Paul says, there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. I would have to take that, that every ruler on the face of the earth at this moment is in that position because God put them there. Kim, whatever his name is in North Korea, who seems like a crazy man, for God's purposes and God's plan, that guy exists and has that power. And I've told you before, my great uncle died in front of a firing squad for for his faith. I don't understand that. It's very deep. It's very far out. And yet God is accomplishing his good purposes and he is not evil. Therefore, because God has put these people in power, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. Oh, yeah, well, there's guys that are good, and then when they do good things, that's God, you know, he's in control at that point. Name me the, name me the Caesar in this time period who was such a great guy and loved Christians. There wasn't a good one. Matter of fact, depending on when Romans was written, it might possibly have been Nero. And he's the guy who burned Christians at the stake, soaked in, in grease to light the parties in his gardens. And Paul says, God has appointed the authorities, thinking of the emperor Caesar, knowing the kind of person that he is, he's supposed to be there for good. Was he good? No. He was not good. So do what is good and you will receive his approval for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid for he does not bear the sword in vain for he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God. I hate those words. He's the servant of God. He's the minister of God. Attending to this very thing. So, verse 7, pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Uh, I've heard a response to this in my former days that if they deserve honor, then you show them honor. But that's not the language here. The language is because of the position they occupy, that's the context, it's the thrust of the argument, because of the position they occupy and because God has put them in that position you show them honor you show them respect and you pay your taxes and you know where this all comes from this, this response, this view, and to, this view of our authorities and this response to our authorities is rooted in the gospel. The gospel. And you're right now trying to think of how, how does that go with the gospel? Romans 13 has a chapter in front of it. Anybody, this is very condescending. Anybody can tell me what the chapter is before Romans 13? 
everybody's, this is not a hard one. This isn't tricky. This isn't leading you out on the branch and cutting it off. This is an easy one for everybody on a Sunday morning when you're tired. What chapter comes before 13? 12, very good. Melanie got it. 12. And how does chapter 12 start? I beseech you. I plead with you, brothers and sisters. Based, and oh, by the way, therefore, that first little word, therefore, I plead with you, brothers and sisters, because of the mercies of God which he has shown to you, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be able to discern what is the good and perfect and something else, will of God, which is really, I think personally that's a poor translation and I'm not the only one out there. It really means that you may be able to demonstrate, not prove in the sense of, okay, I just proved to myself that that was God's will, but that you can prove to others, that you can display and demonstrate to others what God's will is, and that is to transform you into the image of Jesus. That's a very gospel-rooted statement. And Paul, what he's saying is, Paul takes chapters 1 to 11, which are all about how God has worked in history to bring you to Jesus by faith. And that by faith in him, you stand righteous before God and you have become his children and nothing can ever separate you. Even though there are no righteous out there, there's not a single righteous person that walks the face of the earth. But just like Abraham and just like David, if you place your faith in the promises of God, the promises of the one to come, the serpent crusher, Jesus Christ, and you rest in him, God saves you, God declares you righteous, God gives you the the gift of Christ's righteousness to your account. He makes you his child and he brings you into his own household. And now chapter 12, I plead with you that you will live a transformed life because of what God has done for you. Not because you owe it to him, but because you love him. So, now, folks, let's talk about what that transformed life looks like. First of all, the Holy Spirit has given every one of you a gift. And because of what Christ has done for you, you should use that gift to serve God and to serve others. That's the first part of chapter 12. And then he goes on to talk about really crazy stuff like hating evil and loving good. Why in the world does anybody have to be told to hate evil and live with, love what's good? Because it's not who we are on our own. It requires transformation. It requires the work of the Holy Spirit in us because we are attracted to evil. He goes on to talk about a whole lot of things. And he comes down into... Verse 14, and he says, this is rooted in 12.1. It's rooted in the gospel. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And there is no chapter in the original language. It's just the continuation of what Paul has already said in chapter 12. Let every, so do not overcome evil by evil, but overcome evil with good. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Your obedience 
to the governing authorities that God has put in place is a gospel display of the Holy Spirit's transformation in you. Because what is natural to us (coughs) because of original sin is we don't like to be told what to do. I have a 13-year-old daughter who cannot function in life because she cannot handle anyone telling her what to do at all. So when she's told what to do, unload the dishwasher, it is a full-out temper tantrum for an hour, screaming and kicking on the floor and now throwing things and destroying things. All day long. And the reality is every one of us has that propensity in us. We don't like to be told what to do. We want people to come alongside of us and say, hey, this is what I would like for you to do in relation to this. Do you have ideas about how this could be better? We're supposed to, you know, I grew up and I realize I'm old. I already said I'm old, I'm 61. I grew up in a world where literally My dad said, I don't care what you think is a good way to do it. This is how I want you to do it, and this is how you will do it. And when I say jump, you ask me how high on the way up. Oh, that's an evil way to raise a kid. My dad taught me a lot of self-discipline, and I'm thankful for it today. And my dad said to me, the problem is someday you're going to grow up and you're going to have to hold a job and feed yourself and your boss isn't going to give a rip what you think is a good idea about his policies. And if you don't like his policies, he will fire you and you will never hold a job for any length of time. And remember, I was a contrarian. Remember I told you that? We had this discussion a lot. That's why I remember it. And I may not have approached my children quite in the same way, although this is back there and she would probably say, yeah, you were pretty close to your dad as to how you were a dad. But you can't function in life thinking that you don't have to listen to the people who are over you. And Paul's argument is that the Holy Spirit should transform us into gentle, kind people who submit to the authorities that are over us. You know, as I, as I read chapter 13 and as I was putting this together, I thought sometimes the Bible can be a little bit obscure. Have you noticed that? There's places where you just read it and you go, I'm not really quite sure what he's talking about there. And there's other people who are smarter than me. I'll tell you that there are lots of people with PhDs in Bible who sit around and talk about things and disagree, and for hundreds of years have disagreed over certain patches, passages in the scripture. But Romans 13 is not one of those passages. Paul is very clear in this passage. And why is it that our natural response, our immediate response to Romans 13 is we try to find wiggle room? You feeling that inside of you? You're thinking of places where I could find an out on this in some way? I can somehow explain this away? It's because we don't like to be told what to do. And God says, if you love me, you obey me. And obeying me means you have to obey the people I've put in power for my purposes. But it doesn't make sense. That's not your problem. Your problem is Obey me, obey them. We are to pay our taxes, show them respect, and honor them. But should we submit if they are wicked in their governing? What if they persecute those who are righteous? And that's where I think Romans 12, 14 to 21 helps us to understand how we should respond. 
We don't repay evil with evil. We don't be overcome by evil. We love our enemies. We do everything we can to be at peace with people who oppose us. And we trust God that he's going to take care of it in the future. I think a passage that is helpful to this, and we don't have time to go there this morning, but I think a passage that's helpful to this, especially when an unrighteous ruler's expectation involve obedience to wicked laws. There's a couple statements by Peter that are helpful. The first is in Acts 5. When Peter and the apostles have been hauled in because they're preaching the gospel and the religious leaders of their day don't like that and they're told to stop preaching the gospel, Peter's, Peter and the apostles' response is, we must obey God rather than men. You know, if, if the government says, I can't share the gospel with anyone anymore, I'm sorry. I, I have to obey God rather than men. There's a law that was passed in Lynn County. It doesn't apply within the city of Cedar Rapids. But if, if a pastor has someone come into their, their influence world, the world of influence, and says, um, I am, I, a guy comes and says, I'm gay. A, a woman comes and says, I'm a lesbian. Uh, a transgender comes in and says, I'm a transgender, and says, is this, is this right? Does God approve of this? And you say, no, he doesn't approve of this. In fact, God doesn't want you living in that lifestyle. And I understand your attraction. I understand that there's temptation to sin, just like I have temptation to sin. But the reality is, is God does not believe you should be living this lifestyle. And all I have to do, if I live outside the city limits, but I'm in Lynn County, all I have to do is say, and I can help you towards obedience to Christ, if that's what you would like. And I have just violated the law in Lynn County. Because I am not allowed by edict of the county supervisors to try and convince anyone to change from that lifestyle to an obedient lifestyle. That's been law now for several months. And I've met pastors who live in the rural counties, uh, rural areas in the county, just like, not good. What do I do? I sit with them and I tell them the gospel as lovingly as I can and say, God calls you to this kind of a way of life. And if you love Jesus and you want to be obedient to Jesus, I'm here to walk with you. If you want to place your faith in Jesus, I'm here to be here for you. I want to help you go forward. You may never find attraction to the opposite sex. That's a totally different issue, but just lifestyle, you can't pursue that. And I'm willing to help you. And if I get in trouble, I get in trouble. That's, that's Peter and the disciples' response. I have to obey God rather than men. But most of us don't deal with that. Most of us deal with getting caught on the S-curve speeding. <laughs> and then we have lots of things to say, especially about the one that's right before the 60 mile an hour sign, which is where I always get caught. And I'm not even meaning to speed, I'm just moving with traffic. Got a fast car, it likes to go fast. It has nothing to do with me. I get in and it goes fast. It's not my fault. But I would also commend to you Peter's words in his first letter in chapter two, beginning in verse 13, and we don't have time to go there. Peter says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor or as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the will of God. You want to know the will of God in your life? It's real simple. Obey your authorities. This is the will of God. Live as people who are free, 
not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. We were doing really well there, weren't we? Honor everybody. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Yes. Amen. Honor the emperor. Woo. Ah, and the emperor, when he wrote this, was Nero. We know that. Was Nero, who in a few short years would put Peter to death. He goes on to say that when you do good and you suffer for it and you endure, it's a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you. Leave an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And now we find out that this whole thing is a gospel issue. Because Peter says... He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's a gospel issue. Jesus was falsely accused by the authorities. Jesus was falsely condemned by the authorities. Jesus was falsely, unjustly crucified by the authorities. And Peter says, you live your life in such a way that you look at what Jesus did in the face of wicked authorities and you follow his footsteps. And you entrust yourself to God just as Jesus entrusted himself to his Father. And it's a gospel issue. We wouldn't even have the gospel if Jesus had not submitted to the authorities. and done what was right when he was told not to do it. I think I've told you this story before, but I have a friend in Canada who, Canada has a law, it's never been really enforced, but they have a law, and it's been on the books for hmm, maybe 15 years now, that if you as a pastor get up in, in a sermon and condemn homosexuality, you have violated the civil rights of a, of a gay person and, um, and there's, it's a criminal penalty. It's not a civil penalty. It's a criminal penalty and you can go to jail. My friend, when that law was passed, actually went and got his citizenship in Canada. He was an American. He went and got his citizenship. And, I, and you've heard me tell the story, I think. But I asked him, why did you get your citizenship? And he said, because of the new law. I said, well, how does that help you? He said, they can't deport me. I said, how is that good? You'll go to jail. He said, exactly. And there's a whole lot of Canadians in jail who need to hear the gospel. God called me to Canada with the gospel. And I'm doing this so I can stay in Canada, no matter what the law is. That really messed with my head. But it's a gospel issue. We obey God rather than men, but there's a way in which we do it. And you say, but, but we, we won't be able to do what we do. We are here to advance the gospel. They can't stop that until they kill us. And in the meantime, our lives are to be a display of the gospel transformation. So that whether or not anyone believes us, we are obeying God, we are displaying the power of the Holy Spirit, and our actions are actually condemning them it's evidence against them. So it was, there's this Old Testament guy named Solomon who writes about obeying the king that wasn't undone, is actually taken further in the New Covenant as a gospel issue. God's new covenant people are to be gospel and Christ-centered people who are called to be like Jesus in his suffering, trusting ourselves to our just father, understanding that because he suffered unjustly, we are now part of his flock. 
and as sheep of his pasture, as citizens of his kingdom, as those who have known his love and now love him, we obey him and obey those whom he has placed in power. Let me give you one little idea. Start calling Mr. Biden, President Biden, when you talk about him. Realize when you hear on the news someone mocking the president, it's not wrong to point out the problems. It's not wrong to speak out against false Bible-rejecting positions. It's not wrong for us to point out how it is against the Bible. And it's not wrong for us to point out that the man may have mental health issues that need for him to step down. That's not wrong. But remember if you loved Trump, how you felt about it when the people started saying that about him. And understand how the other side feels when you start, there's more evidence. No, 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 no. Honor. Respect. Senator so-and-so. Representative so-and-so. President so-and-so. Governor so-and-so. Okay? Let's just start there. That's going to be hard for some of us to start there. My prayer is that God would give us understanding and that we would be people who would pursue transformational living. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to understand how you desire us to live as children with parents, as employees with our employers, as citizens of this city with our governmental leaders, as citizens of this country with our governmental leaders, how we speak of the police. And Father, help us to realize that as adults, we have a massive influence on our children and how they view authority. Help us to model the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not model the Holy Spirit, but model Holy Spirit transformation because it's happening. Help us to be sensitive where we need to change and give us power to be obedient to you, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In your son's name, amen.